One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 172, The Roman Army in 1025 AD. This past century has been the most successful period for the Byzantine military in their entire history. Though Justinian is remembered for reconquering large parts of the empire, his campaigns were rushed and poorly followed up on. They also provoked attacks from the Sassanids that led to decades of pointless conflict. By contrast, between 912 and 1025, the Romans conceived and executed the plan to rid themselves of the dangers on their borders. Leo VI maintained and expanded his father's client network in Armenia, Romanos Lecabinos, entrusted this network to his general John Corcuas, who led them to demolish the emirates based in Theodosiopolis and Melitene. Constantine VII demoted John and promoted the Focus family instead, but maintained the same focus and goals. And the results were spectacular. Crete and Cyprus were brought back into the empire, Cilicia and Antioch conquered, Jihad silenced for the first time in 300 years. The Korkuas family then overthrew the Phocads, but again, the aims of Byzantine high command did not change. John Zimiskis held the eastern front down, while also driving the Rus from the Danube. Although a series of damaging civil wars followed, the result of them was to create in Basil II a hybrid of all the leaders that had come before a military commander whose record stood comfortably against any magnate, but also the legitimate product of the palace, with a clear vision of what the empire needed. He refused to get bogged down in Syria, was relentless in pursuing the Bulgarians, and finally brought his great-great-grandfather's work to completion by fully absorbing the Armenian world into the empire. Since the soldier Phocas had murdered Maurice, Romania had been a punching bag. A city-state based on Constantinople, whose provinces were continuously raped and pillaged by their neighbours. Now, Roman soldiers stood atop the watchtowers in the Balkan, Armenian and Taurus mountains, ready to destroy those who would invade. Don't skip ahead. Don't think about the Turks and Manzikert. Those were unimaginable events in 1025. What the Roman army had achieved in the past century was genuinely impressive. 
key to it all was the consistency of leadership. Only the period of civil war we recently covered with Bardas Focus and Scleros saw the Byzantines veer from this path. And it's instructive to note what happened when they did. It was during those civil wars that the Bulgarians revived their state in the Macedonian mountains. And that's exactly what had been happening during the past 300 years. In those rare moments when the caliphate was suffering a civil conflict of its own, the Romans had been able to focus their energies on the Balkans and defeat the Bulgarians. But as soon as the Arabs appeared on the horizon again, resources had to flow that way. The Bulgarians would recover and begin to devastate Thrace again. Basil II's campaign to defeat the Bulgarians was an amazing success. None of his predecessors had ever managed to maintain focus on the West for so long and grind their opponents down. And had he been replaced by one of the two Bardases, I doubt either would have done what he did. They would have sought legitimacy in the East and rewarded their supporters with more campaigns against the Arabs. The Bulgarian state would have wriggled free and remained a thorn in the Roman side. And this could well have led to the collapse of the empire once the Turks came to the east. Instead, Basil used his legitimacy to bend the army to his will, and then make the Bulgarians do the same. Making the West safe for Roman rule would save the empire. So, all hail the Romans, once again, for outlasting all their opponents and making it into a second millennium of existence as a state, something no other contemporary power could possibly claim. However, you knew a but was coming, didn't you? It's worth reiterating what had made this success possible, and that was focus. Only when the Romans could turn their undivided attention to one front did they have true success. One of the most important events of the past century was the peace treaty agreed between Romanus Lecabinos and Peter of Bulgaria in 927. That peace enabled the Romans to smash through the Arab borderlands. As soon as Peter died in 969, the Balkans became a war zone again. Also, note the type of state the Romans had success against. If you'll recall, Theodosiopolis and Melitene took decades to conquer. The Byzantines campaigned every year, ravaging the land outside the city walls and empowering their local allies. It wasn't easy to capture those places because they were up in the Armenian mountains. Just the logistics of getting there meant progress was slow. Once they were taken, Roman success was incredibly rapid. Between 961 and 971, the empire captured Crete, Cyprus, the whole of Cilicia, Antioch, sacked Aleppo, captured most of the jihadi border towns, annexed Bulgaria, and put Roman sentries back on the Danube. Now, why was this decade so incredibly fruitful? 
Of course, part of the reason is the build-up of military activity and expertise that the long campaigns against Melitene and Tarsus had generated. But more to our point, this fighting was no longer taking place in the mountains. The amphibious attack on Crete was tough going, but once that was out of the way, the Romans were back to fighting how they'd always wanted to, on flat ground against states similar to their own. Yes, that was another key to this decade of dazzling success. After 300 years of being the underdog and fighting guerrilla campaigns, the Romans were finally on top again. They outnumbered their opponents, and their opponents had nowhere to run. No mountains or forests or deserts to hide in. The emir of Tarsus had to defend his city. He couldn't leave. He had to stand and fight, and so his army was surrounded and destroyed. The defenders of Antioch had to stay in the city, so they were surrounded and surrendered. Saif Adola had to protect Aleppo. It was his capital. If he couldn't keep it safe, he had no credibility as a military leader, so the city was surrounded and sacked. With no Bulgaria to worry about, and with no geographical obstacles in their way, the Romans did what they did best. They marched a huge, disciplined army towards their smaller adversary and smashed them. By contrast, look at what happened next. The Romans fell into civil wars, and the Bulgarians built a new kingdom based on forests and mountains. Knowing that the slow-moving imperial armies would not be able to catch them. And sure enough, it took Basil 20 years of methodical campaigning and a slice of luck to break them and bring them into the empire. Once that was done, Basil marched into the Armenian mountains without an enemy who could touch him within 500 miles, and every Armenian prince in the vicinity handed over their kingdoms to him the Romans needed to focus on one enemy at a time. They needed an opponent with a fixed capital that could be attacked. With this, they could squash anyone on their borders. Without it, they could struggle. And they were always vulnerable to civil war, throwing them off the path and allowing their enemies to sink roots into their local communities and resist them. Remember this when the Normans... Pechenegs and Seljuk Turks come calling in the next century, all in their way decentralized enemies, without fixed leaderships, without capital cities, all preying on the empire during times of civil strife. The military achievement of the past century should not be underrated, but it should be properly understood. It wasn't about tactics, or technology, or battlefield formations, or recruitment, or magnates. Ultimately, the Romans won because they focused their strength on one enemy at a time until they got what they wanted. And it had taken an unusually stable and consistent period of leadership to get them to that point. For those tuning in for a tactical breakdown of how the Romans won their battles, you'll need to go back and check out episodes 133 and 156. In 133 we broke down the conquest army of Nicephorus Phocus, and how he used cataphracts to smash through enemy lines. 
and in 156 we talked about Basil's campaigns in the Balkans and how he patiently marched through dangerous terrain, avoiding ambushes and slowly garrisoning strongpoints. These were two quite different styles of campaign, both executed by the same army. When the Romans could face an enemy directly, they developed the square formation and heavy cavalry charges that were so successful in Cilicia. But when faced with mountains and forests, they had to be circumspect and clever. It's worth saying that despite all the press they receive, the cataphracts were probably obsolete by 1025. They were a, a war-winning weapon against an opponent willing to stand and fight, but against those in the mountains and forests, they were useless. I know some listeners will be surprised to hear this, a bit like our discussion of Greek fire last week. I can hear some of you saying, why let the cataphracts wither? Why not keep them constantly in training for when you might next need them? But that's just it. There were no native cataphracts. It was a skill you had to learn and constantly practice. You needed the best and bravest soldiers, some of them expensive foreign mercenaries. You had to clad them with very expensive armor and drill them regularly. This was a process driven by the Focus family in order to destroy the Arab Emirates. But once that day was won, the training ceased. Expensive units had to be decommissioned in order to balance the budget. Once Basil was in Bulgaria for two decades, he had no need of such troops. What he needed were light cavalry, scouts who knew the Balkans like the back of their hands, who could steal a march on the enemy, slip in and out of the trees when needed, and scout terrain quickly and accurately. The Romans had better soldiers than the Bulgarians. If the two sides ever met in a pitched battle, the Romans didn't need heavy cavalry to win. It was getting them to come out for the battle in the first place that was the hard part. In times of peace, the Romans fell back on what came naturally, disciplined foot soldiers and a small corps of elite cavalry. To supplement this, they hired foreign troops who could provide different skills. Ferocious Varangian warriors wielding axes became the shock troops of the empire, Pechenegs were hired to provide mounted archery. Iberian and Armenian cavalry were used in mountainous terrain. Arab light cavalry for the desert. Non-Roman sources during this period regularly comment on what a multicultural force the Byzantine army was. And the Romans liked it that way. Bulgarian officers were recruited and sent to rule Armenian themes while Armenian princes were sent to govern Bulgaria. Removing nobles from their homelands prevented them from leading local rebellions and kept them dependent on the favour of Constantinople. The major benefit of hiring so many mercenaries was that the empire always had experienced battle-ready troops on hand. The major drawback was that they cost more money than native troops. Last century, when we covered the Roman army in 900 AD, we talked all about the theme system. This was the great innovation of the 9th century. The government registered plots of land for military service, and each unit of land was responsible for providing a soldier. 
It didn't have to be a member of the family who owned the land, but a man was owed regardless. This enabled better local recruitment by pressuring communities to provide for their own defence. However, during the course of the 10th century, the government began to accept cash instead of service. For wealthy landowners, especially churches and monasteries, this was an obvious option to take. Keep young Sergius working on the farm and send coin in his place. The government could then pay mercenary troops to fight instead. By 1025, this system had become normalised across the Roman world, In some provinces, it was doubtless viewed as just another tax, the idea of actually sending local boys to fight a distant memory. It's not clear exactly how the newly conquered areas fit into this system. As we discussed in our last two episodes, the Romans did not attempt to directly administer Armenia or the ex-Arab towns but they were doubtless required to provide either cash or troops to satisfy the local stratikos. In Armenia and Iberia, many men saw the Roman army as their path to riches and gladly volunteered. As we also discussed in those episodes, small detachments of professional troops were spread out across the frontiers, garrisoning key cities and passes. If an actual battle was needed, then the emperor or a leading general would gather an army on their way to war. This prevented the army from mustering in one place too often and uh, rebelling, as indeed had happened under Nicephorus Focus and Bardas Focus and so on. Instead, the emperor could send word of where he wanted units to meet when he was confident that the situation was secure. The emperor would usually travel with the strongest part of the army to facilitate this. The Varangians and portions of the Tachmata were stationed around Constantinople, and many mercenaries were also picked up from the capital's ports. What you may have gathered uh, from these last few episodes is that large parts of Anatolia were now pretty demilitarized. Amorium, for example, headquarters of the Anatolikon, had for centuries been a key garrison in defending the plateau from the Arabs. But now, Amorium was hundreds of miles from any hotspot, and its local communities were happy to send money rather than men to the frontier. When the Turks invade, in about 50 years' time, there will be little in the way of defence in the empire's heartlands, and scholars of the past look to blame this situation on the monetization of the theme system. But this is an argument made from hindsight. By the time the Turks turn up, the centre of Anatolia will have been peaceful for about 200 years. If the Romans had forced local communities to maintain full garrisons, they wouldn't have had the money to pay for the conquest armies which had brought peace in the first place. So that's how we'll find things when the narrative resumes. The Roman army is in fine shape and will continue to dominate its neighbours for the next half century. But it's the new challenges that will create problems. Normans, Pechenegs and Turks, without fixed capitals and various civil wars, will present complex challenges for the Byzantine leadership. What would really have helped is if Basil II had nominated a sensible successor, someone who understood the reasons for the success of the past century and who had a good relationship with the army. 
but he didn't. We'll see how the largely civilian rulers cope with these challenges when the narrative resumes. Let's turn now to a couple of listener questions about daily life in the army. Listener VA asks about how recruitment worked, how long soldiers served for, and what the logistical system looked like. Particularly, did an army need lots of cooks on campaign? Because of the nature of our sources, I can tell you much more about the logistics of campaigning than I can about the specifics of soldiers' service. However, historian John Halden gives the following answers. During the Empire's early centuries, a recruit was meant to be 18 before joining, and ideally 5 foot 5 or above. He would be orthodox without a serious criminal record, and certainly should not have been dismissed from army service before. He would then retire at 40 unless needed. Halden thinks that almost all these requirements went out the window once the Arabs appeared. Certainly criminal records and orthodox faith would have mattered little on the frontiers, and doubtless many teenagers signed up to make money and lied about their age. We certainly know of many officers who continued to serve well into their 50s and beyond. Most of our information, though, is about cavalry soldiers. The theme registers were aimed at providing the equipment and horse for a cavalryman, Foot soldiers were generally recruited when needed for a large campaign. The call would go out for recruits and mercenaries, and many answered it. But doubtless press-ganging did occur when the army was on the march, and many servants also went on campaign with their masters and could be used to perform various non-frontline tasks. In terms of the logistical system, the emperor would inform his officials of where he intended to go and they would help plan the route. They would send word to provincial officials to prepare the necessary grain, meat, oil and wine to feed the army as it moved through their lands. If the emperor was marching from Constantinople to, say, Cilicia, then the army might divide into different columns to get there thus spreading the burden of provision evenly along the route. The demands on provinces could be arduous. One of the few campaigns we have detailed information about were the various attempts to retake Crete. Thessaloniki and its surrounding area was asked to prepare 200,000 arrows, 3,000 heavy infantry spears, and as many shields as possible. Similar demands were made of neighbouring Hellas, while another governor was ordered to prepare thousands and thousands of nails and other fixtures that the fleet might need at a moment's notice. For a land campaign, demands were more likely to be for hundreds of animals, both to provide meat and to lug the army's gear around, along with wagons, carts and materials for siege machinery. When the army had to respond to invasion or track raiders, they obviously couldn't plan where they would be or what they would need. Local officials would scramble to provide some things, but more often than not, soldiers would just descend on a village and take what they needed. 
the locals whose resources were stripped could then claim what had been taken against their taxes. But as you can imagine, this system could be inefficient and unfair. Wise emperors often remitted the taxes of whole regions after an invasion to avoid resentment. Back in the army camp, it doesn't seem like there were specific professional chefs. Each unit would be given rations and the means to cook for themselves. Presumably, most developed a basic competence and took turns, or the job was assigned to certain men for the duration of a campaign. Troops would be given a bread ration and a hand mill to make it themselves. They would bake it in field ovens or in the ashes of the campfires. This would produce either thin oval loaves or the double-baked hard tack, which would last for longer. Uh, troops preferred the former, we're told. Small amounts of meat, cheese, wine and other things were distributed depending on what was available, and of course vegetables, fruit, nuts and berries could be foraged, and soups and stews whipped up when possible. But generally, men lived off bread. Apparently the wheat and barley of medieval times had a higher protein content than the bread we're used to today. Preparing this food as a unit was part of everyday life, and doesn't seem to have required specialist skills. Finally, listener W.C. asks if any formal or dress elements of Roman uniforms had survived since the days of Augustus. Uh, what about the eagle standards? And he also asks whether you could tell, just by looking at a Roman soldier, that he was a Roman compared to, say, a soldier from Western Europe. I've put up a series of images on the website and social media if you'd like to see what we think Byzantine soldiers looked like during this era. I'm not an expert on Roman army uniforms, and I'm afraid I don't have time to research Augustus's day in detail, um, but I feel there's a dichotomy in the way I want to answer this question. On the one hand, certain items of clothing and armour were mass-produced, or a better way of saying it would be that they have a standard design and function that would be easily recognisable. Uh, all of which points to soldiers presenting a certain uniformity. But on the other hand, I want to make it clear that Roman soldiers did not wear uniforms, nor would their gear have all looked exactly the same, in part because of wear and tear, and in part because some individuals could vary what they wore, or purchase different gear, or indeed take it from a dead adversary. The military manuals we can read always encourage soldiers to dress well and maintain their equipment in good order. But the fact that this keeps being repeated suggests that it was often not the case. What I'm driving at is that there would have been a great deal of variety in the appearance of Roman soldiers, but within a basic framework. And of course, the higher up the ranks you go, the more likely you were to see colourful clothing, gleaming armour, or emblems and insignia beautifully painted onto shields, while the lower down the ranks you went, the more likely you were to see men with little armour, or old, worn bits of leather or wood strapped to them for meagre protection. I suspect Augustus would have recognised plenty of this, while also acknowledging that the styles and fashions had changed a great deal. 
um, you know, just geographically, he was largely operating in a different space to Anatolia. I assume, therefore, that the parade gear of the Tachmata would have looked quite different to the first century Praetorian Guard, as the images on the website should make clear. The empire still used standard bearers, as they had done for centuries, and the traditional Roman eagle was used in Byzantine times, but we don't have a consistent picture of its evolution. Um, the cross, the labarum, and various icons are all mentioned as being the main battle standard uh, across the centuries, uh, but we do still find evidence of the eagle's use as a symbol, um, both at home and in the military, although it's not until well after 1025 that the double-headed eagle became an imperial emblem, as far as I'm aware. That's it for today. Next time, we talk in detail about the Varangian Guard in an interview with Brandon Newberg from the Dead Ideas podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 